Greetings. This episode of Broken Boxes, I speak with artist Lehua Uakea. Lehua is a mahu, or queer, Kanaka Maoli, or native Hawaiian, a mixed heritage, interdisciplinary artist and kapa maker from Papa Hikau on Moku o Kiave, or the Big Island of Hawaii. We caught up in Santa Fe, New Mexico during their residency at the School for Advanced Research this summer, where Lehua was working on making some large-scale kapa and other projects. In this conversation, we also have a very special guest show up to join us, or check us, the thunder. One of the most special times of year here on Tewa Land is monsoon season, and the thunder joining our conversation, which you may hear and notice us here, is a true gift of the water that follows. And so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lehua and take some time to learn about their extraordinary practice. To open this episode, Lehua wanted to share an audio recording of the late Kanaka Maoli activist Haunani K. Trask. This recording is an excerpt from a speech Trask gave on the 100th anniversary of the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom in 1993, where Trask famously spoke in front of Iolani Palace. which is pretty funny seeing as we both come from Hawaii in varying ways. Mm-hmm. And here we are on Tewa, Toa Ancestral Lands to connect and talk about your work as a young Kanaka Mali artist. Um, so thank you for being here. And I want to start our conversation by inviting you to introduce yourself and let us know how you identify in the world and what your current practice is about. 
Yeah, mahalo Ginger. Um, my name is Lehua Uakea. Um, I am a Mahu Kanaka Maoli kapa maker and artist working in different um, various disciplines. Um, I use they, them pronouns and she, her pronouns. Um, and I am from a small town north of Hilo on the Hamakua coast of Mokuokeawe, the big island of Hawaii. Um, my hometown is called Papaiko. Learning about your work over the past couple of years, after I first like learned about you through Rise, um, which I was um, supporting through the application process with a mutual friend, Demian Dineyaji, um, I, I learned about your work and I, I felt the intention that you take with how your culture is embedded in all you make. And I just wanted to start off our conversation by asking what does being a Mahu Kanaka Mali mean to you as an artist and how does art affect your culture in today's world and vice versa? Uh, maybe where and how did the two meet culture and art in mm -hmm. your practice? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, being Mahu, being Kanaka Maoli, being mixed indigenous from different places and part of the Hawaiian diaspora, um, you really have to embrace all the different parts of yourself, all the different intersections that make you a whole person. Um, and I really try to bring all of those different aspects of myself into my work. So if I weren't to do so, then part of my myself would be missing and the work would reflect that. And so I don't just talk about being Hawaiian in my work. Um, I think culture also reflects the different environments that I've grown up in. And um, part of that is using materials that reflect those specific ecologies and environments. So... Um, using plant materials, plant dyes, and earth pigments, for example, that reflect the place that I'm currently in or places that I've been as a kanaka in transit. And your bio states that you use craft-based media as a means of exploring cultural and biological ecologies, spectrums of indigeneity, and what it means to live within the context of contemporary environmental degradation. Do you consider your work to be part of a continuum? And how do you learn about practices of your ancestors? And do you have elders who show you how to be in relationship with land and material in that way? Yeah. So I was, uh, I grew up on Hilo, in Hilo and um, on Oahu. So I kind of split my childhood between those two places before moving up to Oregon as a teenager. And when I was back home, I went to Kamehameha Schools, which is a, a school for Native Hawaiian youth. And um, throughout my education there, I was given many opportunities to learn from elders and other cultural practitioners who um, have so much knowledge ranging from traditional agriculture to fishing practices to forestry knowledge. Um, weaving and other traditional arts and so within that it's not just the practice itself it embodies a whole universe of knowledge um, from how we treat each other to how we treat our lands 
our waters and how we even treat ourselves within that whole universe. And so I had a lot of grounding and values before I even started doing the work that I'm doing now. And I think all of those values and foundations serve a, a bigger purpose into the work that I do today. And so now with what I'm doing with kapa, which is a traditional Hawaiian bark cloth, I'm able to bring that knowledge and that, that bigger perspective into the work that I'm doing as a younger generation kapa maker. So yeah, the work that I'm doing now, it's not just me, it's not just individual, it's, it's not even just communal, it's a whole lineage of, of knowledge and wisdom that's been passed down through my hands and through my blood. And um, my main kumu kapa today is actually a, a really good reflection of that um, because uh, his name is Uncle Wesley Sen, and he's the boy that my grandma babysat as a teenager about 60 years ago. Wow. Um, so it's really special, and my grandma ran into him after all those decades, uh, super coincidentally, but you know, there's, I don't believe that there's really any coincidences, and that was just about the time that I was ready to start making kapa. And I believe that our teachers come to us when we need them most, and that's what happened. So I'm really honored to be able to carry that on and to be able to do this work. And what is the continuation of learning kappa? Like, once you learn the actual, like, process, what is the continuation of learning learning with that material? Like, it just seems like something that you can learn layers and layers of on how to process it, the protocols and respect and ceremony around it. So, so where do you find yourself in your relationship to the material of kappa at this point in your practice? Mm-hmm. So I am still very much a new kappa maker, um, relatively, and I think that's a really um, special place to be because I have so much to learn and to grow. Um, and like you said, there are so many literal layers of knowledge in regards to how to process the material, how to work with it, how to harvest and raise the trees. Um, how to use the finished material, how to gift it away. Um, and so I have a lot to learn, but I've already learned um, so much more than I ever could have imagined, even just a few years ago. So, um, you know, I think to answer your question just really simply, my career goal, my ultimate like career goal is to be a grandma teaching their mo'opuna how to make kapa in Olalo Hawaii and speaking our native language, teaching them how to raise the trees, how to relate to their lands in a very holistic and all-encompassing way. And I think for, at least from a Western contemporary art perspective, that's a sort of unorthodox or unusual goal to have. But if I make it to be a successful grandma, that means that I've been a successful parent and a successful individual in regards to the health of 
my culture, my own physical self, my spirit, and my environment. So it's much more um, community-oriented than saying I just want to be a, a big-time commercial artist or something like that. Yeah, that feels so important to um, remember and consider. And um, for Kanaka Mali and many indigenous peoples across the globe, um, that kind of is a given almost. Like this holistic mm-hmm. approach to like um, the generations to come and the generations before and you're you're like a link in the chain or something you mm-hmm. know? and I feel like also within indigenous <clears throat> art practice and life practice pattern is so important and pattern carries story and you use traditional markings but bring them into the world through your lens as a contemporary indigenous person and can you explain your process in decoding these stories or patterns and what you have found appropriate to use and when to keep things more secret and sacred and what your relationship to that visual language is as an artist. Yeah, that's something that um, I'm asked to talk about a lot, actually, Hmm. um, whether in person or often on social media, um, because I do share a lot of my work there as well. Um, the patterns that I use are a mix of Noah patterns, which are free of any restrictions or um, kapu. So they are uh, patterns that are passed down to us from many, many generations ago. And you'll see all throughout different uh, motifs of Hawaiian um, material culture, but also perhaps parts of Polynesia and other parts of the Pacific as well. Um, so you'll see some of those, but a lot of the patterns that you'll see on pieces of kappa or uh, other objects in museum collections, for example, um, they have patterns whose meanings were stolen from us or forgotten um, as Hawaiian culture was forced to assimilate into Western culture. Um, and for that reason, I don't use many of those old patterns because that would be wrong for me to use and almost like appropriating from a meaning that I don't have access to, don't have an understanding of, or don't have the right to do so with my personal lineage. Um, It's kind of like copying someone else's traditional tattoos. Mm. You don't do that because those meanings are specific to that person, to that family, to their clan, to their culture. Um, It is very sacred in that way. Um, So what I was taught to do instead is to look at these patterns visually and to use that uh, aesthetic, that, that imagery and that way of relating to one's environment as a mode of creating new patterns that reflect my personal experience, my current environment, um, and my my spiritual journey. And so that's what a lot of my patterns do. That's what they represent. So yeah, and in terms of sharing, um, <clears throat> I, I don't always share the meanings behind my patterns because 
To put it bluntly, not everyone has to know. And not everyone has the right to know. Um, as a Native person, and I'm sure a lot of other Native people can relate to this so much, especially things from our material culture have been taken from us and appropriated in ways that are extremely disrespectful and inappropriate and wrong. And my way of protecting these patterns is to not always share what they mean or not zoom in when I'm asked to zoom in on a picture. Um, especially if it's someone who doesn't necessarily show the right kind of respect or protocol around the work that I do. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's so complicated, you know, on how how those decisions get made and how you how you determine when it's okay to share and when not to. But I feel like it is a case by case basis kind of, you know, and you have to also feel the integrity of the person who's wanting you to share with them and why. And it must be really complicated coming into the contemporary art world, the larger contemporary art world, as you are slowly pivoting into, as what we noticed in the past couple of years with your practice, mm -hmm. as somebody who's really important to hold space within that realm, but also how toxic that space is. And um, what has been your relationship with, like, stepping out of, like, the traditional art, quote-unquote traditional or native art world and into the contemporary art world? And how are you protecting yourself and your stories and your culture in that space? Yeah, um, you know, I think part of protecting myself and the work that I do and the work that has been passed down to me um, is, you know, not sharing, but also choosing to share when it is appropriate um, because there are a lot of people out there who are working to reclaim um, or are working to honor the same kinds of values and traditions that I'm honoring. Um, so, yeah, just the other day I got asked on Instagram to zoom in on some of my patterns from someone who has no cultural affiliations um, in line with myself and, uh, you know, there's no protocol of introducing themselves. This is who I am. This is where I'm from. This is who my people are. Um, they just asked this, this big uh, ask of me and I didn't respond to that because it was very much inappropriate and not respecting the history of where this work comes from. On the other hand, um, early in the pandemic last year, I had a woman from Italy reach out to me and she's part of a hula halal out there, oh. all the way out in Italy. Oh, wow. And um, she is working to learn Hawaiian language, practice our culture and dance. And even though she doesn't have Hawaiian blood, um, she is doing so much more to respect our culture than I've seen many people who don't have Hawaiian ancestry. And she shared with me that she was in separation from the rest of her family abroad. And um, she was working on this pa'u, which is a, a hula skirt, with her son. And they wanted to tell the story of 
this pandemic and they found my work through Instagram and respectfully asked if I could share anything with them about the patterns and how to use them and if there was anything they could do respectfully. And I gave them one of my patterns to use because they had done so much work on their end to acknowledge the history of where this work is coming from, even beyond just our conversations. And so, like you said, it is a case-by-case basis, and I do protect what I hold because it's not just my knowledge. It will be my grandkids' knowledge, and it is knowledge that was my great-great-great-great-grandparents, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a big responsibility. Yeah, it's definitely... um it's definitely, it feels like a lot more to carry than many um, people who don't come from knowledge of their um, protocols and indigenous history. Like there's a lot more accountability that you have to access. Um, and I wanted to ask a little bit about um, like your decision on when to use traditional materials or more culturally specific ancestral materials and when to just paint on paper you know like I know that you you dabble in all kind of different craft-based medium and art-based materials so so when do those choices come to you and when do you access them yeah hmm I guess it really depends on the audience and the context of where the pieces are going to live in the end yeah I I think a lot of native people are really good at many different things um, and not just doing one thing you know like I have friends who are amazing beaters but they also are beautiful painters they dance they write poetry they do fishing and and traditional practices like that and so um, it all feeds into the same thing but um, you know for me it, it all comes from Kind of the same spirit of wanting to acknowledge my history and future history. And so if I'm telling uh, like mo'olelo, which are like oral histories or mythologies in our culture, I will often do that on kapa. Or if I'm making a garment, I'll usually do that with ohekapala patterns on kapa or uh, cotton. But if I'm doing something for, say, like a more like a public art commission where it'll be in a public space, widely trafficked or something where it's like a school, um, I may be more inclined to do something on like a wood panel painting or like right now I just finished up this commission for the Chief Seattle Club that'll be um, hanging in one of their new public housing projects. And that is um, a series of medicine plant paintings on paper. So it really, it really depends. You know, I, I try to use whatever medium is most appropriate for the specific project and story. Mm. It's getting cloudy. I know. This monsoon season is so dope. I love it. From, so from what I've been able to glean since we first connected a couple years ago, um, your passions include like poetry, hula, harvesting materials in addition to like um, more traditional art forms. Um, 
and also craft-based um, applications. Um, so for many indigenous peoples, there's not severe separation between art practice and life ways. And this feels very true for the way you are sharing your work out into the world. And can you talk about what this means for you at this time? And how do you sus sustain that holistic approach um, to doing so much, to being kind of um, so prolific at such a young age, you know, and um, not being afraid mm -hmm. to try all these different things and access your traditions in these ways as well. Yeah, it's it's very important for me to, like I said earlier, honor my whole person. And part of that is living as much as I can um, in a very um, intentional way. And that includes my daily, my daily life, my daily practices, who I keep relationships with, even the foods I eat, and what I do in my, my quote, quote, free time. Mm -hmm. So it all feeds back into the work that I make because I really can't separate my, my art and my, my work from my daily life it's very much woven together and inseparable. And I think part of, or the, one of the biggest parts of that for me in the last couple years has been um, dancing hula again and uh, bringing back into um, practice my, um, my learning of Hawaiian language, which I stepped away from for a while. And, um, you know, both hula and language are so richly rooted in not just the, I think, the background of our people, but where we come from and our, our whole epistemology, our whole way of seeing the world. And you can't separate that from kappa. You can't separate that from, from these patterns. They all are interwoven mm. and so being a part of a halau is really important for me as I'm getting ready to move up to Seattle in just a I guess a few weeks now one of the biggest things for me to ground and root myself again in this new place will be to find a halau and with that comes the responsibility of being part of a new community having new community relationships um, having kuleana or responsibilities to uphold um, to <laughs> other people. <laughs> I know. Sorry. It's they, pretty, it was loud that one. Yeah, we're here in Santa Fe and it's monsoon season and we can hear the thunder in the background. <laughs> it's not our tummies. <laughs> not yet. Um, yeah, that responsibility. Um, Seattle has a big... Polynesian community and so do you already have connection to place and know where you're going to um, go with that practice of hula? Um, I don't have a specific halau yet but my kumu um, back in Oregon definitely will have some recommendations for me and already has connections up there as as we typically that's kind of how we are you know with coconut wireless so <laughs> So yeah, that's that's my plan, and I also have um, some connections and 
things looking forward to uh, with the Pacific Islander Community Association of Washington, or PICAWA. Mm. And um, yeah, in September, I'll be doing a residency that's a joint project between them and the Burke Museum just for uh, Pacific Islanders. So I'm really excited to have that right off the bat when I relocate. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, that you already have a yourself your queerness your mixed your mixed ancestry and all of that and oftentimes when when we get viewed from an external lens it can feel like something that makes us less but when we find the strength within us 
it can be what makes us actually stronger and like empowers us into many different communities and ways of accessing um I don't know like um solidarity I mm-hmm. guess and so if you wouldn't mind or feel comfortable like talking about your relationship to your queerness and your relationship to your mixed heritage um, because you very much um, center um, Kanaka Maui as the way you assert yourself in the world but there's also so much tender complexity around the other parts of you mm-hmm. and how do you bring those in and celebrate those mm-hmm. yeah um, like I mentioned earlier I I am mixed race I am um mixed Hawaiian and I'm also Mahu which is similar I think to how a lot of other native people identify as two-spirit embodying both Kane and Wahine energies um, kind of being a bridge between masculine and feminine and being in flux between the two and that's how I see my queerness um, a really in-between identity that isn't static but is very fluid like water and I see my my heritage as very similar to that as well while I'm rooted um, in Hawaiian values and practices and that's how and where I was raised um, I also come from uh, Japanese ancestry my grandma is full Japanese born and raised back home though And so we have a very intersectional way of seeing and being in the world. And while I do uh, physically present Hawaiian, a lot of the things that I do and even eat are kind of rooted in my Japanese heritage as well. So I think mixing those two is really important to me um, and honoring the the strength between those two and... um, Back in college a few years ago, I wrote my senior thesis paper on um, the integration of art and science, um, because that's kind of another little um, hybrid intersection that I am really interested interested in and occupy myself. And so I wrote it on the Mulivai, which is the the place where salt water and fresh water meet, where the river flows into the ocean. And as time goes by, more and more I understand that it wasn't just about the integration of art and science that I was using the Mulivai as a metaphor for. It was also about me being uh, raised in two different places across the ocean, occupying multiple different uh, places of ancestry, occupying multiple different intersections of gender. And so being at the, the interwoven intersection of all of that, um, I see the mixing of salt and fresh waters as a really good way of understanding that. It's not a weakness. We need the ocean and the, the river to meet. We need the river to flow into the ocean to continue the water cycle. And that's how I see myself um, as a conduit for keeping these cycles alive. Chicken skin. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm all dead. 
and done. Pow. <laughs> Cannot already. <laughs> Ooh, thunder. I know. Oh my god, that was. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Um, so I just have a few more questions or kind of ideas to unpack with you um, before we end our end our conversation and. Um, so living away from your homelands, how do you keep this holistic approach activated? What advice can you give to others who strive to keep dancing and making, but who may be away from their homelands or in more urban settings? Like what kind of seeds of um, advice can you give to other people that have worked for you in sustaining, in sustaining your spirit as you don't live back in Hawaii? Mm-hmm. It's not easy, you know. It took me almost a decade to find my footing um, and the foundation that I have now. Um, but when I was living in Portland for several years, I finally found a halau um, where my kumu is from the same hometown as me. And for years and years and years, I just kind of surrendered to this belief that I wouldn't find many other people from the Big Island or from Hilo and um, when I did it opens kind of opened the floodgates to the work that I'm doing now to speaking Olelo again to relating to other people in the diaspora um, so the the halal has been a huge pivotal um, moment for me in reconnecting and maintaining that connection. Um, I think another uh, way is, you know, keeping up with things back home, um, keeping up with family. If you have family or friends uh, back home, um, just seeing how they're doing because just talking with them keeps that link alive and keeps uh, keeps you grounded in a way, you know. Um, I just watched Mary Monarch a couple of weeks ago and, you know, that's happening in my hometown. And, uh, you know, it's just really special to be able to have all the digital tools that we do have to bridge those gaps across the ocean. And, you know, I really don't see the ocean as uh, uh, separation. It's It's a bridge, especially for us Polynesians. We've been going across the oceans for years and years and years uh, since time immemorial. And so that's written into our DNA. It's written into the work that we're doing now. And that's probably why you and I are here in Santa Fe right now as well, um, which is polar opposite from rainy, cold-ish, lush, Santa, or, you know, Hilo. So it's... Um, it's important to remember where you're from, but also remember why you are where you are now. Mm. And there's always a story behind it. There's always meaning behind it. And there's always purpose to why you are in a certain place. And oftentimes for myself, I found the reason for that is to help other people who have similar feelings of being displaced or experiences of feeling homesick or disconnected or alienated or even stigmatized in the environments that they find themselves in away from their homeland mm. yeah I I agree completely and I think it's so beautiful to like 
carry home with you wherever you go, you know, and like maintain those ties and connections and like know who claims you and like to claim them back as you're out in the world, you know. I always think about that, like how um, relationship to self and place is so much more than just blood, you know. It's mm-hmm. about like the the culture that you support and that has supported you and how you continue that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really appreciate you saying that. I think it's, it's really helpful to remember. Sometimes when we're in urban environments, we can get lost, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't be here um, physically here in Santa Fe, but also just at this point in my career if it weren't for the unconditional support of my community especially the one that I found through doing hula again Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm just so grateful for that and so what can people who would like to be accomplices to Kanaka Maui or Native Hawaiians do at this time to support the land and the people of Hawaii Uh, that's a big one (laughs) honestly that's what I was gonna say um I think one of the biggest things that you guys can do whether you're non-Hawaiian or POC even just stay home please do not come to Hawaii right now um tourism has an extensive history that is problematic toxic colonial and destructive especially to the native people where we are from and um, it is important to acknowledge those histories and to respect uh, where we're coming from Um, so much of our land and our culture has been extremely just disrespected and destroyed And a lot of that is because of the thousands and thousands of tourists that fly into our islands every day. And that has been first and foremost done to serve the greedy needs of foreign interests. So first thing I would say is stay home and encourage others to educate themselves as to why. Mm second thing I would say is encourage your other Polynesian kin and relatives and Hawaiian uh, friends to stay connected don't don't stigmatize them for speaking a little differently or wanting to take their shoes off before they enter their house or eating foods that you might think are strange or unfamiliar um, because that's really how we stay connected to ourselves and each other even away from home. So it's important not to discourage that or to take that away from us. Um, And I guess the last thing is to embrace some of the values that we as Kanaka embrace. So embracing compassion and love and understanding through aloha, being humble with each other, you know, humility, ha'aha'a, honoring your kuleana, your responsibilities to your families, your friends, yourselves, your culture, and just being proud in who you are, wherever you're from, because we all have an important role to play in this. So, Mm. thank you. 
And for my final thing, is there any, um, I don't know, like three to five pieces of literature or people who are alive today who are Kanaka Maoli that we, or who from the past even, who we can share as resource for people to start to educate themselves? Um, is there uh, any any knowledge building that you could share around literature or people mm-hmm. to look to? Uh, first, I want to honor Auntie Honani K. Trask, who mm-hmm. just walked into the realm of Pol about uh, less than two weeks ago. She was a staunch advocate for our people, and not just Hawaiians, but people across the Pacific and indigenous people around the world. And many, many people and communities have looked to her for guidance in terms of decolonial practices and why this is important and how we can see a, a future forward as, as colonized um, and future decolonized people. Um, so I would look to her and her readings. Um, primarily, uh, one of the most popular is uh, from a native daughter, um, but she also has really amazing poetry as well. Um, Night is a shark skin drum is, is one that I'd recommend. We also have amazing authors like Lili Kala, Kama Elihiva, who kind of take uh, along similar lines as Enti Haunani, looking at Hawaiian sovereignty movements and how we can access that today. If you're on social media, I would give a follow to Enti Pua Case and Havane Rios, um, who are uh, mother and daughter um, protectors and kia'i of our sacred mauna kea. They are on the front lines and have been on the front lines for years and years and years to protect um, native Hawaiian lands. And um, yeah, maybe just try to see where that takes you. There's a lot of connections that you'll find uh, from there on out. Mm Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. And thank you to um, the, the new beings for cruising with us. Support. <laughs> here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, yeah, I'm excited to continue to um, have a friendship with you and to support your work and um, to share your story and your art and message out through Broken Boxes. Yeah, mahalo nui. Yay! <laughs> we did it! And